Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And I'm Brian Colbert Kennedy. And this is science for people who give a shit. That's right. We give you the tools that you need to fight for a better future for everyone. The context Mm -hmm. straight from the smartest people on planet Earth and the action steps that you can take to support them. That's right. Our guests are scientists, data engineers, doctors, nurses, journalists, other engineers. There's got to be so many kinds of engineers at this point. Um, Farmers, uh, politicians, activists, educators, uh, CEOs, astronauts, even a reverend. Wow. Hey, this is your friendly reminder, by the way, that you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at ImportantNotImp or Mm -hmm. email us at questions at ImportantNotImportant.com. You can also join tens of thousands of other smart people and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. That's right. And if any of you work at Twitter and you just want to give us a few more characters, sure, it'd be great to have the whole that name out there great. someday. Please. Should I have picked a shorter name at the beginning? Probably. Probably. Uh, Brian, this week's episode, oh man, what a conversation. We are talking about uh, the new endeavor. What a what a project. What a yeah. spreadsheet. Uh, global.health. It is the new standard in COVID data. And uh, really what we're asking is, you know, what have we learned and where does epidemiology go from here? That's right. Uh, And our guests, the mad engineer behind the whole thing, Mm -hmm. Mr. Robel Casa, Mm -hmm. and then returning for his second appearance, for some reason, Mm -hmm. like Quinn always likes to say, Dr. Sam Scarpino. Unclear. 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 Um, Uh, Yeah, man. Yeah, pretty amazing. They, they've built this thing uh, alongside Google, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, Oxford, Harvard, Northeastern, Boston Children's Hospital, Georgetown, Johns Hopkins, and, and more. The list seems endless, but yeah. Brian, is it enough? Yeah. Serious question. And yeah. why not? Uh, I think we should go find out. Let's do it. Awesome. Here we go. Our guests today are Dr. Sam Scarpino, coming back for some reason, and Rebel Casa. And together, we're going to talk about the future of data and medicine because the tail end of a catastrophic pandemic is a good as time as any to start building for the future. Uh, Sam and Rebel, welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. For sure. Thank you. Thanks for having Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yes, it's awesome to have you back and awesome to have you, Rebel. Um, Sam and Rebel, Give us a quick little, uh, I guess, reminder for you, Sam, uh, the audience, uh, sort of who you are and what you do, and then and then rebel. Same thing. Yeah, great. So, Sam Scarpino, I'm an assistant professor at Northeastern University in Boston. Primarily, what we do is build mathematical and computer simulation models of infectious disease outbreaks, and then we take things that we learn from those models and try to use them to improve public health and clinical decision-making. And so, as you might imagine, we spend a lot of time working with data, trying to inform our models with data, trying to improve data systems, which is how I came to know Robel and and how we got involved in this project that I suspect we'll talk more about uh, over the course of of our conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Robel, what's your story, man? Who are you? Um, I am Robel. Um, So I'm a software engineer uh, based out of Washington, D.C., um, do a lot of um, front-end development. Uh, the past few years have been focused on products around data collection um, for healthcare, public health type of programs. Um, and that's how I met Sam about five years ago now. 
working on working on a product. Currently, I I, I work with Northeastern to um, to support Sam and his team with some data visualization stuff, while also continuing to um, work on um, a separate product. Awesome, rock and roll. Very cool. Quick reminder for everyone listening and you guys, of course. Our goal on the show always is to provide uh, some some context for uh, quick context for our for our topic today uh, or our question of the day, um, and then we'll dig into some action oriented uh, questions um, and what everyone out there can do to uh, to to help support you guys. Sound good? Sounds good. Yeah, sounds great. Mark on. Okay, so should have dug up Sam's original answer to this question, and we'll we'll find it somewhere. Um, oh yeah. Um, but uh, Sam, uh, to remind you and Rebel, we, we do like to start with one question to set the tone for this fiasco. Uh, instead of saying, tell us your entire life story, as, as interesting as I'm sure that is, we like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And uh, Rebel, just because you made that face, we're going to start with you. <laughs> <laughs> I, you. I encourage you to be bold and honest. You are, you are here for a reason. A really good answer always comes out, even though it sounds wild at mm-hmm. first. I think there's a chance um, I forgot to warn Robel about this. Oh, that's very, very <laughs> convenient. There might be a chance. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I vital to me? I am not. I don't. I don't. I don't think I am. I don't think. I don't. I don't. I don't think any one of us as individuals are. I think the collective is probably more vital to survive than any particular individual could be. Um, but yeah, I think I'm comfortable with that ass. <laughs> it's gonna be really awkward when Sam goes on a five minute tirade about yeah. how <laughs> 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 let's hear it, Dr. Scarpino. Well, I am thinking, I mean, that is almost exactly what I said uh the last time we spoke. You know, I, I completely agree with Robel that no one individual is vital. It's how we work together, the systems that we build, the collaborations we build, how we support each other. I think the one thing I would add to that, and it's the number one reason why I'm an academic, is working with students, training the next generation of scholars, and working with undergraduates who will go on to a variety of different careers, hopefully helping them think more clearly uh, and critically about data. and. I'm one of a huge number of people that do this, so also not vital in that area, but it certainly feels like one of the more important things I do day in and day out is teach and and mentor. That seems like a pretty reasonable answer. Yes, that's a that's super, super vital. Pass it on. I was significantly more eloquent than uh yeah, but he's had two tries at it. I mean, we'll we'll call you in yeah, two yeah. years after, after the next pandemic, and we'll do it again. Um, <laughs> oh God! Oh no! So I just want to set a little. Thank you for that, gentlemen. Uh, we, I, we set a little context usually for, for this thing, so everybody gets on the same page. Our discussions. We've done I don't know 110 of these now. Um, can be um, very uh, scientific. They can be ethical. They can be a mix. Um, they can cover a lot of stuff. We talk about some fairly complex stuff on this show, right? And 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 trying to understand them requires committing oneself to a a generalist's education on a huge variety of things. The, this potpourri of systemic thinking and and first principles thinking and some sociology and and biology and 
uh, history and pedology and ecology uh, and activism, right, and political science and maybe some religion and atmospheric science and um, empathy and ethics and data science. Um, and th that's not to say that uh, an advanced degree is required in any one of these uh, areas of study, but we, we've got plenty of listeners who have multiples of those. But, but to, to try and understand, we've, to try and process these things and act on the things that are happening now, uh, and, and what's coming requires a concerted effort for, for all of us, I think, to, to rethink how to think. And we talk a lot more than ever uh, lately, especially that, that the past cannot predict the future, whether we're talking about climate change or, or infectious disease or antibiotics, right? SARS-CoV-1 did not fully predict SARS-CoV-2. And Hurricane Andrew uh, is not the same as, as Hurricane Harvey, which was longer and wetter. Um, and, and so the world is changing quickly, and, and thankfully there are, right? There's these uh, mental models and, and philosophies we can adopt to help frame how to think and our actions. And there are experts in, in all these fields working, as we like to say, on the front lines of the future who, who can teach us the specifics, to give us the bit we need to understand the macros, right? And so we seek those people out, and, and everybody seeks those people out when they're, when they're scared. We want to look for someone like, Sam, who's been studying the, the, the epidemiological side of this, right, their whole life, who know it, who have seen it coming, who, quote unquote, have been training their whole life for this moment, right, who, who might be able to say, as you were saying, Sam, offline, when you called into the sports shows, uh, you might have an idea where this thing is going, right? And in, God, a year ago, February, more than a year ago, March 2020, there weren't a whole lot of publicly available or at least readable, digestible models for how a novel coronavirus like this might sweep its way through a population of, of a planet that it, where everyone is susceptible. But not long after, right, there was, I saw this joke on Twitter, everyone's going to look up in five years and try to figure out why they're following six epidemiologists on Twitter after they've blacked it all out. But at, at that a few months in, everybody, your your friends, your family, your bosses, everybody had their favorite model they were looking at, right? The, the, the federal government had them out of model, state governments had them, universities had them, teenagers who just knew the bare bones of like SQL had models. But we face down these relatively slower moving threats like climate change every day, right? We know what hurricanes can do and we know we have a pretty good idea how they're changing and wildfires and how they're changing. And we know what assault rifles can do. And we know what urban heat is doing. So we're pretty familiar with the inputs and the outputs on these things from a natural science level to society to individual. But despite years of warnings of, of how something like COVID and SARS-CoV-2 would happen, we didn't know how it was going to go, right? We didn't know how people would react. We didn't understand the inputs fully, right? And, and whether you had talk about on a federal leadership level or individually. We didn't know how it was going to affect us on, in the biological sense, how governments and workplaces would react. And so a lot of those models really didn't agree. And that was fucking terrifying for a lot of people. And so what I want to get into is what do we still have to learn and how can we do better going forward? And so, guys, if you could, after all that, I'd love for you to talk about global health. What is it? Why does it matter? And how is it different from everything we've all been looking at this past year? 
Wow. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I for sure. Um, I, I think I could probably teach and would very much enjoy an entire course just trying to understand the nuances of or the implications of some of the things you said. Interestingly enough, at least where I saw that quote about why are we following all these epidemiologists, it was something that Nate Silver said. Right. And I I promptly quote retweeted him and said, I can't wait until I'm wondering why I'm following all these pollsters um, after the election's over. Hundred <laughs> um, percent. Right. To your to your point, and I'll be brief at, at this stage because I'm very curious to hear from from Robel his perspective. But and and I may go back and modify this in a minute. But the human response to pandemics or the human response to an infectious disease outbreak is typically what determines whether it becomes a pandemic. Whether we do a good job like they did in Vietnam, Thailand, Mongolia, New Zealand, Nigeria, um, or a bad job like the United States, UK, that really dictates a lot of what's going to end up happening. And so I think a big part of the reason why COVID-19 became a pandemic was precisely because it broke so many of our mental models about how to respond to an infectious disease outbreak, uh, at least in, in the U.S. and and Western Europe. And, and I actually think that's the kind of thing that we need to be prepared for is that the next pandemic is not going to look like COVID because we'll be ready for a COVID. It's going to look like uh, something else. And that's actually from a technology side. One of the things that Robel and I have been working on for years now is how we build data systems, data visualization systems that anticipate the need for not knowing what the hell we're doing. Uh, as it's happening. And that's what we're trying to do at global.health. Um, we can say a little bit more about specifically what we have done, but the ultimate goal is to engineer something that's going to be ready for whatever it is we're not going to be able to predict uh, in a year from now or, or in five years. So the question that stuck with me, I mean, what is the thing that we're going to learn that is going to help us with the next one, right? Mm -hmm. Essentially, I'm, I'm not quoting you verbatim. No, please. Um, I am not an epidemiologist by trade. I, I build things for mobile devices and, and the internet. And that's, you know, that, that's what I do. But the one thing, my takeaway from all this has been that, you know, obviously the models are going to change. The next pand pandemic or epidemic is going to be different. But I hope that we rethink how we think and it sort of goes back to, you know, how, how you mentioned empathy. And a lot of a lot a lot of the past year, I, f I feel, has been mired in figuring out how to think about the pandemic, how to think about human behavior, how to think about what to do to um, mitigate the spread. And the data models help, but like how people treat evidence, how people behave around evidence, how people react to it, I think has been more telling than what any of the data models could possibly tell us. COVID is significantly different from SARS and significantly different from the Spanish flu. But the one thing that has been consistent through it all is that human beings have behaved certain ways through it and have lived through it. So to, to, to be stubborn about what we choose to believe and learn from these things is as, as, as I think what, what could be either meaningful and helpful for the, for the next one or absolutely detrimental. 
So how do, so we need to fix people <laughs> then. That's what it sounds like. Fix all as, of as, as as a non epidemiologist that no that that would be my takeout. That that is the one thing that I've learned from the past year is that there is something that is inherently broken about people that sort of gets in the way of us being able to get past this. Because whether it's me and you and us as regular citizens or people who dictate policy and governance, this could I, I feel that this could have been fixed in three to six months just don't be an asshole don't do dumb shit don't be selfish stay your ass at home the government's going to take care of critical workers and employees and make sure everybody's taken care of we're going to get over this hump in three to six months done we should have a separate conversation about this topic it would be incredible seriously would love more um i I think i may have derailed this whole entire no 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 no, no, no. (laughs) we're gonna get it back on yeah a it's typically how this goes but go ahead sam I was going to say very quickly, what we're going to find out is that Robel is running uh, for the United States Senate and he's going to be announcing his <laughs> candidacy uh, shortly. Yes. Um, yes. No, but to, to actually kind of take what Robel was saying and tie it back to, to global.health, I gave a presentation uh, this morning about the work that we're doing. And so one of the things we've done is to curate a database of 25 million COVID-19 records at the individual level that have been anonymized from 160 countries. Uh, Stephen Johnson, writing for the New York Times Magazine, said it may well be the most complete portrait of this virus in existence on the planet. And so one thought might be, if we're going to learn anything about this, it might help to have a data set that's representative of the global picture of COVID. And I think there's some truth to that. But I'm also, as in your intro, Quinn, I'm, I'm skeptical about how much we're going to be able to generalize going forward. And, and so what am, what am I getting at here? Well, one of the questions that came up in the Q&A is, are you building AI models to predict when we're going to get to herd immunity threshold in different states in the U.S.? And my response was, we don't need AI models for that. I'll tell you what the problem is. Only individuals over 18 are eligible for the vaccine. We need to vaccinate 75 to 85% of the entire U.S. population to get to herd immunity threshold. So that basically means we've got to vaccinate every single person over the age of 18 until they lower uh, the age group. So the question is not about the logistics of the rollout, the lack of equity. All those things are true. You know, there's grossly, grossly unequal, not even equity. It's grossly unequal in terms of race, ethnicity, uh, socioeconomics. But the big issues, vaccine hesitancy, anti-vax, these things that have been around literally since the first time a vaccine went in somebody's arm are the same battles that we're fighting now. And so that's also part of what we're trying to do at Global.Health is to understand that this is not a problem that can be solved by one expert or a handful of experts, that you have to bring together a large, diverse and representative group of people who are committed to two things. One, trying to get out of this quickly and prevent it from happening again, and two, not being assholes. And that's basically the goal of, of Global.Health. And we're fortunate to have technologists like Rebel who are helping us build the kinds of data systems that will scale as we grow from 25 million records to 50 or 100 million records, but then as we respond to the next infectious disease outbreak and also help us communicate what do we know about COVID from 25 million records 
Well, that means we've got to build intuitive, interactive data visualization systems that tell the story uh, accurately and, and in a transparent way so that people can perform their own audits around whether they believe what we're communicating or not. And so all of these things are really wrapped up into this large, complex system that we're trying to uh, work on. And that means we're not going to be able to pick apart little pieces. We're not going to be able to reduce it down into a set of separate problems. We have to come at the whole in unison. And that means we've got to have a, a big collaborative group all working together uh, towards this common objective. And it seems like that's what you guys have put together. I mean, the, the, the list of folks and institutions involved is, I don't want to say comprehensive, but it's, it, it's, it, it seems like the, the, a bit of the Avengers of folks who've been working on this so diligently for the past year. <laughs> to, like you said, try to build something that tells as much of the story as we can tell. Well, I can tell you, well, I think that's true to a certain extent, although we are overwhelmingly represented by individuals that are based in the United States and the UK. We do have people who work uh, in countries in South America, who work in China. We have some collaborators in South Africa, but there are large swaths of humanity that are not at all represented in our consortium. And that's one of the things we're working uh, actively uh, to try and address is how we build better global representation because we can't solve the problem without it. And what about the, so I, I, I believe, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking about the, the, the folks that are involved on, the, on constructing this thing. What about uh, the data, the records you have so far? Uh, obviously they're anonymized, but do, can you talk at all a little bit about where they're pulled from? Like, is Brazil's nightmare situation involved? Is, uh, you know, so much of uh, West Africa, which is doing seemingly very, you know, relatively much better. Like, I guess, how are those records being included, if at all? Yeah, so we have data from about 160 countries. And only recently did we have more data coming from the U.S. and Western Europe than the rest of the world. And, and that's because the U.S. had to release all of their individual level anonymized records as a result of a, a open records request, I think, from the New York Times. So we got about 16 million cases from the United States, which doubled our data set size. But did you have, did you get 16 million faxes? Is that how you got it? It's very nearly that. Yes. Um, at some point over beers, I'll tell you about how we tried to dump 16 million <laughs> records into the database and about an hour before we launched and Robel was sitting there very calmly and coolly deleting them <laughs> as I was trying to dump them in there with the rest of the data team. Um, That's an entire. I don't know, Robel, you want to add something about the representativeness of the data set? I mean, you spent a lot of time looking at the map since you built most of them. And, and keep me honest here, Sam. Um, a, lot, a lot of the data gets ingested from, from w what different countries, Ministry of Health, decide to make public, right? Sure. So um, they could be um, daily pressers of you know, how many cases were discovered, or they could be mostly aggregates. Whatever is made available publicly is what what gets adjusted, and because everybody sort of has a uh, a different way of presenting data, whether it's a clean CSV or a PDF of a manually typed out piece of paper, uh, you sort of have to accommodate for all these nuances when when ingesting the data. On the bright side, uh, if if you guys take a look at the map visualization, the coverage. Is decent. It could definitely get better representation in certain pockets of the world. I, I, I think there are outliers like 
like Estonia, Sam, like we were talking about it the other day, where the coverage is practically 100% or a little bit more. It's 110%. 110%. We don't know what's going on. That's 110%. Yeah. Um, hmm. I mean, I appreciate the effort, but it doesn't add up. <laughs> well, what's interesting, right, is we, we capture data from formal and informal sources as well. So Exactly, exactly. We sometimes um, have more cases than the countries themselves report. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually have the only publicly available data on China's early cases because we had volunteers who were hand-entering it as they were getting reported social media accounts back in January of, of last year. And so... Yeah. Um, even for the United States, if the U.S. released all of their records, let's pretend they had all of the records recorded, we would have more cases because we started entering manually the cases that were reported sure. via social media, via press releases back you know, earlier than this time last year. And, and that means, in particular, we have some of the really early data. Um, Ghana, for example, was releasing every case via press release. Uh, they're still up on the the ministry's Facebook page, I think, but you can go through like press release by press release and see the cases, you know, the age, the demographics, what where what city they were in, all that kind of stuff is whether they traveled to China or not. Uh, all that's there. Fortunately, we were capturing as it happened, so we don't have to go back and retrospectively do it because the job would be too big. But uh, that's one of the things we want to make sure we're ready for in the future. Is you're going to have to do manual data entry. Sure. early on because there won't be a data system in place by definition. You guys will appreciate, I asked Brian to literally put our guest's book recommendations into an Excel spreadsheet and he was like, I'm not sitting at the computer that long. I'm not doing it. Wow. Meanwhile, Rebel <laughs> like, It's hand, maddening. Hand How do you do it, Rebel? <laughs> My God. Oh, man. So, I want to you talk, you know, there's obviously a, a, a um, a disconnect in some places, like you said, you you started hand tallying some data, and then there's official records or semi-official records, and sometimes it's 110%, sometimes it's far less. You've got places like Brazil that are that are just having an impossible time. You've got places in Africa where people are going like, how could it? How could they be faring so well when when obviously the number of factors are are so complicated? Um, you've got Southeast Asia, which was prepared in, in so many ways because they dealt with SARS and we didn't, you know, all of these different things. But we've also got, again, like this public that has educated themselves this much, as much as they can, frankly, um, in a lot of places. And and everybody becomes a prognosticator, right? And and then there's also people that are just, whether they're a policymaker, an elected official, or a TV host of some sort or radio, they they are invested for one reason or another in, in this thing going a certain way. And so we get into the misinformation realm, which seems to be, it's been around for forever. Everyone thinks it just started. It's not. Um, I mean, it, it, but at this point, it does seem like an indelible part of our society, right? It's just moving faster and it's moving deeper and, it, and it's very dangerous. And we can know that and we can track that now. We can see what happens with uh, you know, encrypted WhatsApp groups in in these war-torn countries. Um, so it predated this pandemic, but half a million deaths doesn't help, right? Folks, folks um, have both on one hand lost trust in specific leaders, but also institutions. Look, I, I'm not a scientist or a doctor or journalist. We talk, I, I'm, I'm a very candid about this, but I my study, I went to a liberal arts school, man. We asked questions. I studied, I'm like a pagan atheist, but we studied religion and anthropology and sociology. And and forever, people in extreme times have have searched out 
uh, content and and people and groups that they can connect with, right? Um, and that's part of the reason people look to prepper groups or religion or things like that or Newsmax for leadership, for community, to try to find a, a reason, however plausible, uh, for why things are the way they are. And and sometimes to be told what to do and, and how to act. Uh, last night, when, when I was sitting here thinking about our work uh, and, and thinking about how to have the conversation today, I noticed uh, Alexis Madrigal at The Atlantic was literally tweeting uh, the new CDC director because the CDC took over. They shut down uh, the COVID tracking project that they worked so hard on for a year. And uh, Missouri showed this, and the new CDC database, Missouri, showed this big spike in cases. And Alexis was like, you can't just put that out there. People are going to freak out. You have to have some sort of notation or people are going to get scared and they're going to read into it. Believe me, like I answered 40,000 emails about this over the past year. I like all in, in good faith, but society is so fragile right now <laughs> and people are still scared and they're still overreacting, even though we're, uh, you know, getting to towards the end of this, hopefully. How do projects, like you said, that are, have so many folks involved, so many good folks, but don't represent everyone yet and don't represent all cases yet. And, but how do organizations like this and, and the people behind it, how do you solve from the beginning for ethics and trust from top to bottom? How do you build that, not only these data sets? How do you become trustworthy so that we can move forward? I think it kind of goes back to the first jaw-dropping question, right? Why are you, why are you vital? Or are you vital at all? And I think when it comes to ethics and trust, it's you know you can you can assemble an Avengers the Avengers of all super team super bands, and you have a lot of <laughs> talented people. But at the end of the day, I have to be able to like the person immediately next to you um, has to be able to trust and vouch for you, I guess? Well, I, I mean, what that reminds me of is one way that I can decide if I trust something is based on my relationships with the people that I have involved in the project, right? And so if I trust Rebel, then I'm going to go into anything he's involved with with more trust to start out. And how do you do that in an international distributed community when we're all online? How do you do that in such a way that it's it's not going to be co-opted, or at least if it is, there's something you can do about it by individuals with, um, you know, nefarious motives. And I think what we tried to do at, at Global.Health is to engage with this at the very beginning. And so work with ethicists, data privacy experts, lawyers around how do you build a consortium? How do you construct the legal entities around the data? How do you engineer the back-end and front-end systems of our, of our software to have privacy and ethics part of the design process and, and one of the objectives that we're working towards? And it can be relatively simple things like linking back to all the sources of the data. So in principle, someone could run their own audit against uh, our database. It's also being open and, and transparent about where the data are coming from and, and why and what we think they represent. But it's also, especially in the US, a really tricky issue to think through. You know, in South Korea, for example, they have a social contract between 
the government and the citizens that if there's a public health emergency, the telecommunications company releases companies release all of the data on individual movements over to the Korean CDC as a part of contact tracing efforts. And that's part of the reason they were so successful uh, in their MERS response a few years ago, in their, in their COVID response now. And instead, in the U.S., the tech companies have all of the data, but we don't get to benefit from it on the social side uh, during a pandemic. And so even trying to navigate what we mean by uh, the ethics is difficult because then that's the U.S. experience. And now we think about, okay, well, let's talk about sub-Saharan Africa, even though we're going to be lumping together a huge number of diverse sure. countries. Place country like Kenya has a, a law now similar to the GDPR in Europe. And a part of that law is that information that contains data on Kenyan citizens needs to be stored on Kenyan soil. And the GDPR has the same law for Europe. And so why is it that if Europe says you got to store European data on European soil, that Kenya can't say you got to store Kenyan data on Kenyan soil? Sure. Well, here's one reason you can't do it. The cloud data providers, at least as of last year, didn't have any data centers in Sub-Saharan Africa. So all of those countries are completely cut out from being able to have those kinds of, of laws. So if we think as an international community that that's the ethically responsible thing to do, I'm not saying that it is, then whole swaths of the planet are cut out of that. And so... That's part of what we're trying to do at Global.Health is have this broader conversation around what do we need on the technology side? What do we need on the legal and ethical side to really embrace this challenge, understanding that there will be cross-cutting themes, but every country is going to have its own issues that we're going to have to engage with if if we're really serious about it. Sure. And that always that also comes back to like hmm. these sociological and anthropological and political science questions, which is like and I, I always am trying to, whether it's talking about urban heat or, or medical outcomes or, or, or sea level rise, like dialing this thing back down to, to the first principles, like the immovable fundamental pieces of these things. Like, like you said, each country is going to have its own issues. Like you said, Oh, uh, they want to store it on Kenyan soil. That's great. That now becomes a hardware problem because like you said, those things don't exist there where we've been offshoring stuff to Ireland for, for years. They've got plenty of data centers over there, right? So that becomes that. But then you have to ask yourself like, okay, so why aren't those things there? What have we failed to do or failed to support them in some way? And why haven't those companies done those things, et cetera, et cetera? It's, it's, it's complicated and, and I, I don't envy it, but we, we need to have those discussions because you know, if people are acting in their, their own, their people's best interests and their country's best interests, and and global health's best interest because if there's anything we've discovered from this thing is that it travels we, we can't just say well hey here's the right thing to do and you guys need to do this because it nobody's got the right answer these days for any of these things we we have to we have to be a little more open about them and a little more transparent about them if this if we're gonna like we said have a a, a face down something that presents itself even more differently than SARS did and MERS did and, and COVID did no, I completely agree. And, you know, I think that that word transparency is really important. It's one of the things that I try to do when I'm speaking with journalists about COVID-19 is be as open and honest as possible about where I think my biases are. I'm sure I have, I know I have plenty of biases that I don't know very much about, uh, or I'm only learning about, uh, but at least being transparent about the things that I do know so that it will help people interpret what I'm saying in the right context. Uh, is is so important. But maybe perhaps one of the bigger issues, and would certainly be interested in all of your takes on this, is that, you know, in the U.S., there's this rhetoric around 
science as some objective truth. And there may be some objective truths out there, some of the laws of physics, you know, those, those kinds of things. But by and large, science is just as much a human endeavor and a human problem as Robel alluded to in, in his opening, right? That you cannot separate epidemiology from the politics. It cannot be done, if nothing else, because the politicians are the ones that decide what happens and what doesn't happen. But then as we see, even if you open up the restaurants, if people are shit scared, they're going to stay home. And so you got to open up the restaurants after you've controlled COVID because then people will go back to the restaurants um, if they feel safe. And that's the challenge, right? Is that part of what we're trying to do when we educate people is navigate, I think, this misconception about science as um, a source of objective truth. I think it's a way of reasoning about problems and it is a way of approaching complex systems uh, in a rigorous uh, ideally reproducible way, uh, but it is not necessarily going to find an objective truth. And as you kind of alluded to in the beginning, Quinn, even if we find the right answer today about COVID, that may not be relevant to the COVID uh, of tomorrow. And some things will be. We need to learn from, learn the lessons and, and remember them, but not in a dogmatic way that prevents us from responding kind of adaptively as, as new challenges emerge. I mean, MC Hammer put MC Hammer put it best. Was it last week, two weeks ago? Right. If you're gonna measure, uh-huh. you have to include the measurer. And it's like, oh my god, that should be plastered on like every building. It is everything that is. It is. It is. It's interesting, right? Because it's it's a hundred percent true. It, it, we always talk about one hundred and ten percent, even one hundred and ten percent. Sure. Uh, uh, I mean, we talk about again. Let's get into. The history side, uh, you know, history is written by the victors, right? So we talk about, oh, the the, the financial bull markets of the 90s and the economy was some of the best ever. Uh, sure, for a segment of people, but for uh, another segment of people, uh, the war on crime and the war on, uh, on black Americans and the war on marijuana uh, destroyed the uh, popu- entire populism. We built a million private prisons. Like, you, you have to tell the whole story. And if you're not... Uh, coming back to if you have if you're going to measure you have to include the measurer, uh, which is usually people that look like Brian and me and Sam, and not usually people that look like Rebel. We we haven't let them do the measuring, um, and and so suddenly we have a pandemic and the seas are rising. Like the receipts are in, it didn't go so well, um, but at the same time, like we have to be more transparent about that. But what's also interesting is I, I'm thinking of. Um, you guys might be familiar with this this newer group that's out there called Data for Progress. They do uh, uh, as they I think they describe themselves as a as a uh, I think it's like a multidisciplinary uh, group of polling or political experts using uh, data science to support progressive policies and and people behind them. Right. So they mostly work on analysis and 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 polling and policy and messaging. They don't, as far as I can tell or anyone tell, and, and again, like Sam, you were saying, it's about trusting the people involved, and, and I don't know them that well. I've tried to, but um, they're not just cherry-picking polling data to support liberal candidates, right? They're trying to support measures that will progress uh, society and, and outcomes, right? To build this cleaner, more just world for many more people than just white men, landowners. And so I'm curious about how we take if we can, should we can, take projects like this, which isn't operating specifically in the political sense, and look at American 
outcomes. We are, our medical system is entirely reactive, right? The supply chain was just in time. We don't have a sense or prerogative of, of wellness, um, right? We just published a conversation this week, which was incredible, um, talking about how and why, both things equally important, young black men die after heart transplants uh, way more than every other group. And the factors are, are so many. But, and so the inputs are overwhelming, and, and the entire system is, is killing large swaths of people, but I want to have an impact. I want to move people here. I want to bend the fucking arc. And I want to know, you know, should we use data like this, things like this, whether it's about energy, it's about epidemiology, to create more actionable progressivism? Does that sort of thing exist, or does that break the laws of what you guys are building? You know, because we have problems that need addressing, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious if tools like that should be used for things like that, for policymaking, for polling, for messaging. In a perfect world, yes, they can. Um, but it goes back to what the Honorable MC Hammer said. When you measure, you have to account for the measure as well, right? Um, because it's sort of, it's, it's the problem with facial recognition AI, not being able to recognize or discern the differences between different black and brown faces, which when used by, you know, ICE or Homeland or law enforcement becomes a devastating, horrifying, appalling sure. fuck up. <laughs> um, it's healthcare data that for, for the same reason where, you know, black men die of heart attacks at a much higher or heart attacks at a much higher rate. And you're looking at black women dying at childbirth sure. at a much higher rate. I, I think there is something to be said about getting representation, not just in the lineless data of the data that you're getting, but also in who gets to analyze or parse that data, Get having enough diversity in who gets to present that analyzed or parsed mm -hmm. or visualized data, and also who gets to, or, or and also like having the, diversity in the policymakers who get to take that data and do something with it. So it's, I, I think, I think the biggest mistake is in thinking that getting diverse data is enough because that doesn't do yeah. much if every layer of process after that doesn't involve as much rigor in, 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 in that diversity and inclusion and and, and nuance as, as the lineless data does, which is why, you know, again, in an ideal world, you would have ethics departments and, and regulatory bodies who, you know, who are more vested in not doing racist, sexist, transphobic, homophobic shit than actually being called racist or sexist or transphobic or homophobic. Uh, I, I think when people talk about Rep representation as to, to account for all these, for lack of a better word, failures in different segments of society. I think they just come at it as a very, eh, here's a freebie that's going to fix this quickly type of approach when it really doesn't. What do you think, Sam? No. I could go on about this for, for, forever. You're, you're, you're welcome to. We, got, we have no time <laughs> limit here. One of the ways that governments disempower populations of people is by excluding them from data sets. 
part of the reason we fight so hard over how the census. And so one way that communities can be empowered is by ensuring that they are included in the data. But as Rebel pointed out, one of the ways that governments marginalize, control, abuse populations of people is through data on them, through surveillance and monitoring. And so there's this push and pull between how data can empower and how data can disempower. And what that means is that you need to both ensure that data are representative and they are collected on populations of people uh, in such a way that those populations are empowered, that their needs and wants and dreams are visible to the government, but that there are representatives in the government, that there are representatives who are responsible for analyzing those data, for communicating them, for designing policy that come from those communities that understand the needs and wants uh, and dreams of of those communities. And it's that whole picture that you have to have complete uh, if you're really going to be successful. I think a, an anecdote about this is all of the, the news coverage around vaccine hesitancy in communities of color. And we hear about Tuskegee and everybody says, well, it's a well-earned distrust. And it's like, well, that's true. But also there are no fucking vaccination sites in communities of color. Uh, the first vaccination site that opened up in Boston uh, was in South Boston. South Boston's a great place. It was not one of the hardest hit neighborhoods. Uh, it's majority white. Um, the hardest hit neighborhoods throughout Boston, uh, the majority minority neighborhoods, uh, only February 27th, I think, did a mass vaccination site open up in one of those neighborhoods. So right now, it's not wow. about vaccine hesitancy. It's not about uh, Tuskegee or the 10,000 other things that we've alluded to since Tuskegee that have happened. It's the fact that we didn't engage with individuals in the community. We didn't reach out to them. We did not include them in the process and we did not take vaccines uh, into their into their neighborhood. And so it's both sides of that. Yes, we need to have the data to understand that sure. black women die during childbirth at substantially higher rates, that you have uh, big issues associated with heart transplants, as you pointed out, in black men, that we understand the racial injustice uh, that has happened in the medical and healthcare system so that we know how big the problem is and how important engagement is in terms of beginning to uh, move forward from that. However, you know, in Massachusetts, we're talking about equity. We're not even vaccinating equally with yeah. respect to, to population size per capita. And so that means that Robel's point, that's the one we got to be working on, right, is ensuring that people sure. that represent those communities are making the policies, are running the analytics, are building the visualizations, that's where uh, the delta is right now. Um, sure, we need better data. We always need better data, but sure. that's, that's, I think, a red herring. Well, and that's kind of <clears throat> what I, what I, what I want to get at there. Like, if someone came to you, uh, let's say a, a, uh, a young black uh, politician uh, or uh, someone running for office or an indigenous person, whatever gender, and they came to you and said, global.health is, is amazing. I need this data. I need you to run X data, or I would like to use this data in this talking point or this speech or this policy or this messaging, whatever it is. Are you comfortable with that? Is that, is that how you, are you comfortable with, with that being used this way? Or, you know, I'm, again, I'm curious about like, how do we, how do we move that line? Cause clearly, like you said, we haven't learned anything, uh, we, we haven't made any changes in 400 years, much less 100 years, much <clears throat> since since COVID started. We knew uh, COVID was was 
over-indexing on both the exposure because of where they are forced to live and work for for Black and Brown and and Asian and Indigenous uh, Americans, and then they were hospitalized and killed at greater rates. And yet, three months later, we break out the vaccines and they are under-indexed on on receiving them because we, like you said, we we didn't roll out anything mobile, we didn't open sites, we didn't engage with communities. We continue to not be actionable on the things that we know. We've already had a lot of this data, man. You know, we've we've had it for a long time, and it's because the system was designed to work this way. It's not broken, it's worse, right? It's worse than that. Um, oh, good. Nath- Nath- yeah. Nathaniel Hopper, who, who wrote the Scarlet Letter, he, he wrote a short story um, about early days in Massachusetts and smallpox outbreak. And the smallpox outbreak uh, starts with a rich person moving smallpox into the community and spreading it around and ends with a wholesale death and destruction in the poorest parts of the city. This is nothing new uh, when it comes to effects of racism, when it comes to the effects of classism. Um, and we saw that with COVID. You can see in our lineless data, it is overwhelmingly 40 to 60-year-old males who show up with COVID in all of these countries. And it is overwhelmingly uh, minority communities, whether that's black and brown communities in the United States or whether that's indigenous communities or, you know, the list is long in every country which groups are marginalized that die uh, after COVID takes hold yeah and this is 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 what i want to know is how do we make this stuff operable how do we how do we how do we partner with groups like run for something right uh which exclusively works with with americans under 40 people of of every gender identification with with mostly women you know how do we pair these type of groups and institutions together so that we can put we can we can for lack of a better word, probably poorly chosen, arm those candidates, those people with the information to go out and do that because they are mostly, I mean, again, a group like Run for Something mostly works with local and statewide folks. They're, they're running people for fucking school boards. They're running people for, for uh, you know, city councils and things like that. That's where you have an impact with, with data like this. It's not just like, oh, look at the global outbreaks and, and this and that. It's, this is what happened to our community. This is what's happened over time. This is how we can use it. And this is how we can build that into messaging and policy. And, and yeah, I mean, and the, uh, that, that seems to be the, di- it's easy to say it's a disconnect. I think that's lazy and probably what I've said most often, but it's not a disconnect. It's, it's an intended consequence is, is not enabling those people to be able to do those things. I want to, Take it over to Rebel because my vision for how you do that involves technology. You can make the data interoperable and easy to access so that those groups, they just take it, they use it, they're empowered by it, they're the, they can analyze it. As we said, they, they can help close that loop. Um, I don't know, Rebel, if that's your... And that is, that would essentially be my take as well. I mean, with global.health, the data set is quote-unquote open source um you can you can download the entire anonymized data set if you choose to do so um for whatever reason you might need 10 plus million lightless data um and if you know if 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 this amount of data is meaningful to craft policy around that's an absolutely great thing 
but it sort of goes back to um, you know asking who is making the policy and for whom who's doing the measuring and what are they measuring and for whom are they measuring? Because as, as diverse as this, as this line list data is, what ends up coming out of it could be something completely different. Um, but this is a necessary first step. And like Sam said, it's try, making this interoperable, making the analysis side of it as user-friendly as, uh, as possible as um, as open to integrations to to different platforms as possible is is fantastic because I've been doing this for a few years and I still find some some types of digital data visualization just overwhelming and not particularly useful. I can only imagine <clears throat> a policy wonk that doesn't that's not really interested in 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 charts or visualizations trying to parse through something like this. Um, so th th there's definitely a, a data diversity side of it, which I think global.health is continuing to, 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 to deliver on. But the next natural step is definitely, okay, let's make it easy for everybody to be able to read, parse, and analyze this data. Yeah. That's, um, I, I wanted to ask you, Rebel, um, because it's, it's, super important for our community to understand that you know everyone's capable of of contributing to to huge huge issues like like you know covid and 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 climate change um every person has you know something that's applicable uh you've been working on data like you just said uh data engineering for for a long time now do you feel that a skill set like yours is is more more useful and more applicable than than before. Possibly, I and to be perfectly transparent, I don't find what I do to be particularly extraordinary. Um, I'm a I'm a drop in the ocean of like terribly talented people um, that that I'm only trying to emulate, really. Uh, but it's there definitely is. A use for this kind of talent, especially at this point, I think society slowly and hopefully trying to move towards uh, a more evidentiary or data-based decision making or data-driven decision. I think is the woefully um, catchy, trending phrase. It's a useful contribution. It's a meaningful contribution. But again, it's absolutely meaningless if if there is really nothing to follow up on that. Um, in terms of larger decisions around what helps us all as human beings take, you know, make the next step better. Yeah. Although one thing I would add to that is part of trust <clears throat> is websites looking, feeling professional, functioning under high volume, like all of the the, the engineering you, stuff that requires. Are you ripping on my website right now? I'm <laughs> I trying, was just, man. No, it's, I was you know, just thinking that. I know it's broken, Damn dude. It, Sam. I, it's, it's a, I'm working on it, man. <laughs> But I'll tell you what happened is that a couple of days ago, a major Twitter personality tweeted about this mobility dashboard that Robel worked on with us uh, back at the beginning of the outbreak. And it spiked the usage, what, 200x in a few seconds as soon as he tweeted. And the website didn't crash. It just ran along like, it, it, like a professional built the website, not like some academic sitting in a basement somewhere that happened to take a coding class a few years ago. And so <laughs> part of it is having 
real professionals who know how to build these things, that also helps with the trust side, right? And I mean, it's a big part of the reason why we're so fortunate to have people like Rebel who are interested in contributing to these sorts of projects because it lends a measure of credibility that we would never be able to build uh, off of our academic CVs because the website would fall apart as soon as anybody looked at it. Yeah. You're so modest, Rebel. You're a badass. Own it. (laughs) Um, uh, You guys, if it was March 2021, like it is now, uh, and you were grad students or college students uh, or community college students, or maybe you didn't want to do anything with, I, I mean, I didn't go to college, but you wanted to join the fight for public health. Where would you start? Yeah, knowing what we know now, would you pursue the same path? Would you guys do the same thing? Build the same things? What do I do? Basically, I'm asking you, what do I do? No, no, Brian, this is not a question <laughs> oh. for you. This is for oh, right. this is for other folks. Please leave <laughs> yourself it. out of it. That's sorry, a sorry, different sorry. podcast. Well, I would if I would say if I were you guys, I would start a podcast and I would bring people <laughs> on who can tell us what it is. I mean, that's what I would do. But, Nailing um, it. If I could, if I could go back and do anything, I'd be a podcast. It's terrible. It's it's so bad. <laughs> You're really getting the no, good I, digs in, Sam. Well, the website one was totally unintentional. <laughs> I, for me, public health agencies are so massively understaffed and underfunded, under-resourced. Community health organizations, individuals working with vulnerable populations, whether that's homeless, displaced, um, individuals who are experiencing effects of racism, transphobia, all of those, these huge issues. Any way you can get involved at chipping away at those problems, and whether that's just showing up and volunteering, whether that's donating money, whether that's running for local political office so that you can get more money flowing into the coffers of these organizations, whether that's going back to school and getting a master's in statistics and getting a job uh, as as an epidemiologist working for the county public health agency, you know, and working your way up through the health agency. There's so many ways to contribute because the need is so massive. I think maybe the one take-home message would be we need everybody to be contributing and everybody has a way to contribute. Just ask for what's needed. And almost certainly on this giant shopping list of things that we need to work on, you're going to find something that either you can do or you want to learn how to do. And you know, if you want to learn how to do it, then assuming you have the privilege Take advantage of. That's the much more eloquent <clears throat> version of what I what I've discovered is the easiest way to. Again, we we've got forty different systemic issues, right? Um, many of which are of our own design that we're trying to get out of. But you know, whether you're riding in the back of an Uber or whatever, it's friends and family. They say, "What can I do?" And the best answer is usually, "What can you do?" Because whether it's design or, or data engineering or another version of data science or it's podcasting or it's art or it's writing or, or running for office on whatever level, everybody can contribute something. Um, but what you guys do now, I mean, you guys are, are until the next pandemic, I mean, you guys are, are, are rock stars of a certain, of a certain segment, right? Um, and so that's what, yeah, I, I appreciate you taking the time to really think about that, especially Sam, because I know you work with students every day in these young energetic people again must be nice to have energy you know who are coming up and thinking like okay this is where i i can fit in this is where i can i can make a difference rebel what about you i guess do you regret the time you've worked with sam or do you feel like you would start (laughs) like 
We can we can take it offline if you. Want. <laughs> no, obviously I don't regret any of it. I, th- I think I think if anything, I, w- I, w- I wish there was more I could do. Everybody has a craft. Everybody has a skill. No matter how 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 they choose to aggrandize or minimize it, they have a skill. And I and I think the the, the difficult moments happen in how you choose to use those skills and again what can you do right if if you're a writer you could write about something that could move the needle on this particular thing if you're if you if you do podcasts you could do that um if you build websites and app and make things pretty and functional you could you know dive into projects that could hopefully make a you know make a meaningful difference in in public health and how that whole environment uses and um, analyzes data. I think that is probably fundamentally the easiest step that could also have some personal rewards. I mean, I would I would love to I'd love to sign up for for grad school and do complex sciences and networks network science and 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 get a PhD at, attached to my name and take over Sam's class and put him <laughs> out of a job, but. <laughs> that, that would be awesome. Anytime. Um, Welcome. We'd be thrilled to have you. No, but again, it's 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 what you choose to do with 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 the craft that you have. If if you're an undergrad grad student and you know you haven't even figured anything out, but you still want to make a difference, I am pretty sure every collegiate town has at least one volunteer organization or nonprofit that's working with communities to make a difference with in the, in the middle of this pandemic, whether it's volunteering to hand out and give out face masks or, or, or do after school programs or teach, whatever there, 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 there definitely are hundreds of avenues to make a difference. I think committing to it and taking that first step is probably what holds people back because they might feel like nothing is going to be yeah. good enough. That good old fraud. Well, pa- paraphrasing Kurt Vonnegut, and there's only one exactly. rule, right? And it's, you can't be a fucking asshole. Otherwise, otherwise, there's something for you to do, and we and we need you. Yep, that's my. That's what's on my wall. Uh, no. I don't know if you can see it. Work hard and be there nice. Work hard. Are we going to name this people. episode? Don't be an asshole. Maybe. It's it's been a recurring <laughs> sentence. And I love it. Those were good answers. Those answers make me feel like I should probably uh, do something more with my life. All right, Quinn, you want to get into it here? Yeah, let's let's uh, awesome. let's bring this home. Let's get to our action steps. Uh, one of the most important reasons we do this whole thing. Uh, uh, always, what we want to uh, uh, do is, is is be able to provide our listeners with something that they can that they can do uh, to to support your mission. Uh, uh, we like to talk about them doing that with their voice and and their dollar. So let's start with their voice. What our what are big actionable uh, specific questions that all of us should be asking um, of our representatives uh, to to support your mission? Well, I think right now it's what specific steps are you taking, and you here is relevant political representatives. What specific steps are you taking to close? Not the massive equity gap, but just the equality gap in terms of vaccination coverage and access 
uh, in the United States. It's pretty specific. Yeah. And then the second one would be what what specific steps are you taking? And this is probably directed towards your federal representative to close the even larger gap internationally in terms of access. Rock on. Awesome. Love that. Rebel, any additions to that? I think that pretty much nails it, really. Specific to specific to that. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll add one just because uh, are you being an asshole would be a great Go question to ask. Is anybody going to say yes? And, and, <laughs> and what about their dollar? Where can, where can our listeners uh, throw some money to, to help you guys, to help everyone? Well, on my side, food insecurity, housing insecurity are huge problems. Opioid-related crises across the U.S. Uh, have exploded during COVID-19 for all of the reasons that you might imagine. So any organizations that are working with those, uh, with those groups, I think for me, one of the more profound uh, volunteer initiatives that I've been a part of is helping distribute diapers and feminine hygiene products uh, to individuals that need it, because that's typically something overlooked when people are donating. And it's often one of the biggest needs after any kind of natural disaster or emergency or, or just day-to-day life. Uh, and so if that's not something that you've been donating to, uh, start. Yeah, we actually, just to interject real quick, we we uh, we built a page. Um, I think it's important.important.com slash diapers. Is that right, yeah. Brian? Yep. Um, we'll put in the show notes and it's got links for all the diaper banks uh, in the U.S. that need them right now because they're basically all out of fucking diapers. It's a... Everyone should empathize with that, but if you if you have had a child or been around a child at all, I mean, it, it's one of those necessities. I mean, it's like food and air and water and shelter. Like, it is impossible to to parent uh, a, a healthy child without those things, and it's an absolute disgrace that that is something that's unav- completely unavailable to so many people. Um, so, yeah, you can do that there. All right, why don't we bring this thing home here? Uh, guys, thank you so much for all of your time and thoughtfulness uh that you've, that you've put into this and obviously all the incredible work this year and uh with with global.health um last few, few quick questions here we ask everybody uh and you can you can take turns whatever you would like um gentlemen, same time yeah that's always great uh when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful Instead of talking over each other, we're just going to stare silently at the computer. <laughs> I'm into it. The, the, I, I'm trying to... I was just thinking, Sam, we must I'm have already to, asked you. Yes, right. Sam, first time, Sam right? Ever. You know, if you hadn't said that, I probably was ready to answer. But now, because I'm sure I'm going to say something different that... Um, That's okay. I'm just going to let, let Robel go. <laughs> I, I don't think it was any specific... This is gonna be. This is gonna sound corny because this is really the only thing I can think of. Um, because I can't put my finger on a specific incident where I thought specifically that. But like you, Quinn, I'm a pagan atheist, and I and I remember going through the motions of reading and discovery and curiosity and logic and reason and getting to the point of, oh wow, okay, I have come out of this a different person. And I'd like to think a better person, uh, but that's objective. But I think the fact that 
I was able to go through that change or that transformation and that growth, I think is probably the first indicator for me that I was, and hopefully I would be able to do not specifically that particular thing of going from a religious upbringing to abandoning it, but any meaningful change that could hopefully help growth or transformation in somebody else. Again, corny as hell, and I'm sorry. Uh, but that's but that's really the only thing that that I can think of. Well, it's not changing anything or anybody else, but the fact that I went through that is probably more meaningful to me in terms of understanding what I could do to change situations or other people. And and you that's, think that's you great. that that it hasn't affected anybody else that got you to where you are today, and you just among your many accomplishments, you built a massive database of of twenty five million records about a pandemic that's going to save lives. With with with, 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 with of course, with a team of unbelievably talented <laughs> Ab- people. Absolutely, man. But um, it got you here, and so we're right. we're thankful for that. Sam, S- same answer. Um, you know, but it's the well, you know, I guess I was going to say when I came on the podcast two years ago, right? I mean, you don't no. um, enough. <laughs> sorry, I. Uh, <laughs> You know, the thing that came to my mind, and I'm going to go back and listen to what I said last time, is the first time I stood up in front of a classroom of students. I was an undergraduate in Indiana, uh, working as an undergrad TA uh, for a biology class. And you're standing there and you're realizing that all of these people are listening to me. And and then somebody tells you afterwards that there are people in that room that are going to be looking up to you, uh, whether you want that or not. And if and it's it's a responsibility that if you're going to keep doing this, you have to take seriously. And I think for me, that's been you know, one of the most incredible parts of the last 15 or 20 years of my life is getting to play some very small role in helping educate uh, and mentor uh, individuals as they go through the process of, of college and of, of now of graduate school and getting a PhD and then now of transitioning into, you know, role as a, um, you know, independent, independent scientist and, and researcher. Awesome. You, you hold great power. My friend. Yes. Um, gentlemen, uh, a little shorter. Who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? My wife. Well, I, I'm also going to say. Are you going to say Robel's wife? Yeah, I also have. No. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> but by Robel being here, then that certainly is a positive, uh, positive impact. Um, well, I'm, I'll have two answers then, because certainly my wife is also an answer in part because. Uh, she's an English professor and has a, a master's in, in rhetoric and writing. And so if if I've ever put anything out in public that was legible and uh, accurately communicated what I'm trying to do, it's because she's helped me with it. Or Because the original draft but, is covered in red ink. Yeah. Um, and the other, his individual has been on the show. And every six months, if you ask me for the rest of my life, it's going to be uh, Professor Brandon Ogbunu, who's at Yale. Um, constant source of inspiration, uh, both in life and in science. Um, every conversation with him is inspiring. Yeah, and I, I can't thank you enough for that original introduction. He he has become just a, a, a massive uh, influence on me. I, I could not have more respect for that for that man, and uh, the way he is not only doing the work he's doing, but the, the other ways he's putting himself out there is is pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. It's amazing. <laughs> I, I I agree. I just stalk the man and his brain. It's on incredible. Twitter. I love that he's writing for Wired. I mean, doing all this stuff. It's it's awesome. All right, Brian. Let's w- do Rebel, it. 
Do you can you do you want to expand at all on on your answer to that question? By the way, or we just sort of moved past it, but well, not just the past six months. The past year has been super different in terms of working full time and parenting full time. We have a two year old toddler. Both my wife and I work. So to have like to to, to have that to to have that partner that is, I mean, saying supportive is corny, but it is true to have that partner that's supportive, but also. She is a sounding board that definitely makes my work and thinking significantly better and more refined. Amen. Yeah. And amen indeed. And and I'm grateful for that. I love it. Incredible. Awesome. Um, you guys, what what's your uh, what's your self-care? What do you guys do uh, for your for yourselves? When you're not totaling up the apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try to make time for yeah. books. That goes into our right our next question. What yeah, book no, you've is, read this year uh, that's changed your thinking in some way? This is going to be a humble brag moment. Um, so I'm on my eleventh book for the year so far. Um, trying to get to a book a week, um, and I came short last year, and came even, came up even shorter the year before. So I'm trying to just cut back on Netflix and Amazon Prime and all of that and then just go analog on, you know, sure. books on paper. That's great. So the first book I read that sort of like blew my mind is called, um, it's by a Vietnamese-American author, uh, Ocean Blog, called On Earth We Are Briefly Gorgeous. It's a work of fiction, but brilliant, brilliant, brilliant piece of work around, about um, the Vietnam War um, uh, Vietnamese immigrants in the U.S. Um, and then the author's pseudo-biographical coming out story as well. Um, but it's it's told in this in, the, in these three parts that address those three different issues in such a incredibly poetic and vulnerable and mind-blowing kind of way that I went down a rabbit hole just chasing all the cultural references from that book, like looking up traditional uh, Vietnamese like mourning songs uh, to, to deal with grief and loss, um, even though I don't speak sure. a lick of Vietnamese. But it, it, it definitely, it was definitely a, uh, an eye-opener and extremely rewarding literary awesome. watch. So I was, I was happy about that. And he's not, and, and he's not cutting me a check <laughs> to say this. I don't know the man. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Sam, what's your self-care, man? Well, I mean, I haven't been on an airplane in just a little bit over 12 months, which for me is, it's the longest in my life by far. Um, I mean, I flew, I'm not even going to talk about how much I flew before because you'll throw me off the show climate change wise. <laughs> but um, as a result, just exercising, working out, I've probably lost 35 pounds in the last year, which I, I needed to lose. Wow. So that's been super important. But the, the more fun answer is that... Um, we got a Nintendo Switch, which is the first yes. gaming system I've owned since high school. Uh -huh. And it turns out that both my wife and I love Mario Kart. And so we'll, we take these random like 15-minute breaks in the middle of the day and just do uh, a couple of, of uh, circuits uh, on Mario Kart. And we spend a, we're spending a lot more time together during the day now because we both work all the time. And, and so that's been kind of... Um, that's that amazing. is such a great answer. Who's your, who's your go-to driver, man? Let's let's get into this for a sec. 
I, I switch it around. I switch it around, but it's it's got to be a shelled driver, and uh-huh. it, has to, it can't be Bowser because Bowser's too big. I lost my kind of vision. Um, yeah, no, although way- I will say that it it was like about uh, about two weeks ago when I actually realized that the controller turns, and so I part of the reason I was having trouble is I mean I drive like this from the old Nintendo days, but right. you can't see what I'm doing with my hands. So I'm you can imagine what I'm doing. We can. Yeah. It's on video. It's amazing. Yeah, I see it. I mean, I know you can oh, see, audience. but hopefully oh, whoever audience. watches listens No, they later, know because they've say. known how to drive in Mario Kart yeah. for 25 years. They're just like, why has he just figured out how to steer? <laughs> well, but I'm sitting there. I'm like, why am I keep going off the course? And it's like, oh, because the controller is slightly more advanced than what I had in 1997. And it actually Fair. turns when you just turn. a little bit. Sure, sure, sure. Um, that's amazing. Mario Kart Breaks is fantastic. That's awesome. You got a book you want to talk about briefly? Yeah, super briefly. I mean, I was thinking there's a bunch of... Uh, Great books I've read over the past year. It's definitely one of the things that I do for self care as well, uh, although not as much as Rebel and not as much as I'd like to. But uh, Pachinko by uh, Minjin Lee, uh, fantastic book, uh, four generation story of a Korean family. It's beautiful uh, story and and history and incredibly well researched. Um, I, I heard her speak at Northeastern not too long before the pandemic, although the time kind of blurs together. So definitely, if you haven't read that. It's um, yeah, really just a, a fantastic, uh, fantastic novel. It's an incredible journey, gentlemen. Uh, this has been uh, pretty fantastic. I, I really yes. appreciate your time. On top of everything else, uh, you guys are doing. Where can uh, our listeners follow you online? Well, global dot health, uh, not global dot health dot org or global dot health dot com. Although I think those redirect, but just global and then a period and then health. Perfect. That's where all this information is. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, SB Scarpino. I'm also all over the place. Um, there aren't. There is one other Sam Scarpino. He, I think, had a band a few years ago that's not made it, and so it's, I'm pretty easy to find because there's no other, no other prominent. Although there is another prominent Scarpino that he, he does uh, a bunch of YouTube stuff. I think. Brian, but, Brian, can, Brian can make those guys go away. It's fine. Fat band. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> we'll get the right Scarpino and and Rebel. Yeah, as Raw Bubble at Raw Bubble on. All the on, all the all things, the things. Um, on all the things, uh, trying to stay like really consistent. I, Brian got a whole lecture about that last year. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say. Yes, I did. Thank you. Uh, oh, you did. <laughs> um, this has been awesome, gentlemen. Thank you so much for your time uh, and all the work you're doing. Uh, it's truly an incredible resource for humanity, which is not something one can say lightly. Um, so we appreciate it. Thank you for guiding us through all this stuff. Yeah, thanks for coming back again. Dr. Sam Scorpino. Awesome to have you. I'm such a thrill. Thank you both for everything you've done over all these years now. Um, you know, both in terms of the the types of people you bring on, the the kind of platform you give them, but I think just your commitment also to action steps is something that we need a lot more of because that that helps, right? I mean, as we talked about before, just doing something matters. And to the extent that you can help inspire people to do things by giving them specific suggestions. That's just an incredible uh, resource that, that you've put out into the world. So thrilled to be here again. And thanks so much for everything you guys have been doing. Absolutely. Thanks to our incredible guest today. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. 
Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us. You know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jam and music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.